It has really been a joy getting to listen to all of our Old Testament characters these last few months. And I think an ongoing theme that we've seen in a lot of these characters is God working through difficulties, right? And Hannah's not going to be any different as we come to her this morning. The one thing that's unique to Hannah is unlike a lot of the characters that we've looked at that we've seen throughout the Old Testament and even mentioned in the New Testament and referred back to many times, everything we know about Hannah is in 1 Samuel chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 11. Everything we know about her is right there. So some might ask, why take Hannah tonight? Why would we study her when she's only mentioned so briefly? What we are going to learn tonight is that Hannah plays a vital role in the transition of Israel from the time of the judges into the monarchy, the long-awaited king for Israel. So her future son, though she doesn't know it, is going to be the final judge and the first prophet. And he's going to play a key role in the nation of Israel having a king. Of course, knowing King David is on the way. And also... The more I read Hannah this week, the more her life just resonates with ours. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Yet Hannah trusted. Hannah obeyed God throughout it. And so as we think about the context of 1 Samuel a little bit, it's similar to Ruth, right? We're still kind of in the time of the judges. People are doing what is right in their own eyes. There's no king in Israel. There's no true leader taking place. If you know anything about uh, 1 Samuel, you know that those who are called to lead God's people, the priest, Eli, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are wicked men. And yet when we come here, we're going to see Hannah's family worshiping God there. So Hannah is worthy of our study tonight as a woman of relentless faith. And her faith, we're going to see on display through her plight, through her petition to God and praying and asking God for a son, through her presentation of her son back to God, and then finally through her praise to God in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So let's begin with Hannah's plight. We're going to read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It is not on your screen because it's such a long text overall tonight. So if you have your Bibles, open to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, it's page 225 in the Bible there in front of you. So let's begin. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from the city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept. She would not eat. 
Now Cana, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So the opening here is like many other uh, narrative passages where we are learning some context. We're learning about characters, things that are vital and important to the story and help us understand what's taking place. And so we have a few characters mentioned here in these verses. We have Elkanah, Hannah and Peninnah's husband. He's, he's mentioned here, and then he's mentioned in a geneal- genealogy of First Chronicles chapter 6. There we learn that he was a Levite. We, we know that he lived in Ramah, which is in the hill country, somewhere between 9 and 15 miles away. No one's quite sure because they're not exactly sure where this location is. But Ramah's going to continue to show up throughout the story of 1 Samuel. Samuel eventually is going to move back to Ramah. This is where he's going to be buried. Uh, Ramah is where King David fled from King Saul. And so he shows up at Ramah, and it just continues to show up throughout the Old Testament. And this is where they're from. Now, Elkanah clearly was a spiritual man walking in obedience to Yahweh because it says that he was committed to making this journey from Ramah to Shiloh with his family to offer sacrifices to God. He's, he's walking in obedience to the command that God gave the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5 through 7. I want to read those verses for you because they're, they're important to our story. Verse 5 says, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. Now, listen to verse 7, because this is important to what we're seeing in Hannah, because there's a contrast. It says, There you shall eat before the Lord. You shall rejoice. You shall, and you and your households, and all that you undertake in which the Lord God has blessed you. So this is a family event. They're all traveling to Shiloh together. It's, it's a time of rejoicing, festivities, eating, And yet we're talking about Hannah's plight. They're traveling to Shiloh because this is the place the children of Israel established to set up the tent of meeting in Joshua chapter 18. And so Elkanah is walking in obedience to God by packing his family up, making this trip down to Shiloh, um, out of the hill country, to worship God. And it's supposed to be a feast. And yet Hannah is having serious difficulties. Verse 2 is key. Look at the end of verse 2. We have a contrast established between Peninnah and Hannah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. Now, I realize that this contrast is more meaningful to most of the females in our group tonight. Uh, When my wife and I got married, we hadn't been married long, and people would start to come up to us and ask us when we're having kids. How many kids are you having? I'm like, man, we've been ready for a few months. Back off, people, right? I mean, give, give us a chance. Uh, but then once you hit the one-year mark, now it's like they're all over you. Like, what's wrong with you, right? And I was just amazed at the boldness of people, especially since we had really close friends who had been trying to have kids for years but unable to. We knew the hurt. We knew the pain of miscarriage and of not able to have a kid when you desire it for so long. And it used to frustrate us because we weren't, 
I was in the middle of seminary, weren't necessarily trying to have kids yet, but I was like, why do people keep asking us this? Now, my wife took it a little bit more personally than I did, right? Uh, but this, this is how people view it. It's like you get married, you have kids, it's what you do, and they don't think much of it beyond that. Well, whatever cultural pressures that we felt, which were minimal in comparison to what Hannah felt, in their culture, in their time, Hannah was in sincere pain, as we read in our text tonight. And so Hannah was feeling inferior. Peninnah was able to have children, able to provide for Elkanah what she could not. You add to that verse 6, and it says her rival. It doesn't even say her name, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So you you take the difficulty of not being able to have a kid, a child, and then you add to that a second wife. You can imagine the difficulty there automatically. But a second wife who's gloating in her ability to have children and using it against you to intentionally cause you pain. This is how Hannah is living her life. Day in and day out. But there's more. It's not just those two things. What's, what's adding greater difficulty, difficulty to her struggles, it's all being heightened each time she goes where? To worship. To worship God. Have you ever been to a place in your spiritual life where it was hard to come to church? It was hard to worship God because of the difficulty, the pain, and the confusion taking place in your heart and your life? Verse 3 says, year by year. This is normal for her family. This happened every single year. But then on verse 4 it says, on that day. So when they came to worship, when they offered the sacrifice, Elkanah would offer food to Peninnah and food to Hannah. So it's an act of worship, and they were going to take this food, and they were going to celebrate. They were going to rejoice. Even the act of worship was a reminder to Hannah that she was barren, that she couldn't have kids. In verse 5, the English Standard Version says that Elkanah gave Hannah a double portion. Some of your translations might say uh, that she received a unique portion or a choice portion. Now, to be fair, if if you read the Hebrew literally, it says a portion of one pair of nostrils. Or two noses as one portion. You can see where that would be difficult to translate, right? Uh, don't, don't get lost in the translation. I don't think that matters nearly as much as the reality that Hannah's portion was different than Peninnah's. And that created a greater chasm between the two, greater difficulty for Hannah, and Peninnah took advantage of it. She was all over it. And so, in verse 7, it reminds us one more time So it went on year by year. See how the narrator is strategically just pounding in the year by year on that day, year by year. This continually happens. This is not a one-time event for Hannah. This is how she was living her life. We don't know for how long. But we do know that each time she came to worship the Lord, she was in distress. She was hurting. 
where did this plight come from? Where did this difficulty come? Well, if you look at those verses again, we see that it was from the Lord. It was not by chance. It wasn't that she couldn't have children because there was something physically wrong with her. God, in His goodness and His love for Hannah, for His people, chose not to allow Hannah to have children. God knew the difficulty this was going to put Hannah in. Like our not just for kids, the doctor knew it was going to cause my brother-in-law pain to set his bone. And yet he did it because he knew in the end it was what was best. This is how God works in our lives so, so many times. This is how he's working in Hannah's life. God knew exactly how Peninnah would respond and what she would use this for. And yet, look at Hannah. Where is she? She's worshiping. She submitted to Elkanah, her husband. She went with the family to worship. This happened year by year. She knew what was coming. And yet she's there. She's walking in faith. Her faith is leading her to obedience in God. Even though it's creating intense difficulty in her life and in her heart. So a question for us before we move on to Hannah's petition. What emotions or circumstances in our lives keep us from walking in obedience to Christ and His Word? There are times in which we allow our circumstances to cause us to sin or at least not to walk in obedience to what we know is right. I've, this happens often when you're raising children, right? Right? It's easy to respond incorrectly to your five-year-old. This is really real to me, okay? It's easy to respond incorrectly to my five-year-old when he is so rebellious to me, right? There's no excuse that I don't respond in gentleness and love and kindness to him. Are you trusting that God is sovereign over every part of your life? We recognize oftentimes that God is sovereign over the big decisions in our life, but realizing that He is actually sovereign in all these small, mundane moments of our life, that we can trust in Him and that He is good. Hannah's obedience didn't keep her from walking. Hannah's faith didn't keep her from walking in obedience to God. But how does she respond to her difficulty? Let's read her petition in verse 9 through 18. It says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting at the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So think about her emotional state as we read through this text. She vowed a vow and said, O oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on my affliction of your servant and remember me and forget and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. 
I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made of him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her, and her face was no longer sad. In great anguish, and the text says great anxiety, Hannah does two things that no woman in the entire Old Testament is known to have done, other than this moment. She goes to the house of the Lord and offers a prayer of petition to God. She vows a vow to God and follows through with her vow. Now think back on some of the characters we've looked at so far and their wives. Think of Sarai and Abram. She manipulates the situation and goes and gets a handmaid to fix the problem. She's trying to fix the problem that's in her life, herself. Think of Jephthah's vow that he made, right? When you think vow, a vow, you can't help but jump back to Jephthah real fast. And the, and the harsh vow, the rash vow he made before the Lord. And yet here's Hannah, the exact opposite, offering up her future son, if the Lord would just give her one, back to God as a living sacrifice. She prays with such confidence as she approaches the Lord of hosts. Yahweh of hosts, of armies. Hannah is praying to who she believes God to be. She's confessing the character of God with her mouth. God, I believe that you are the God of armies. The God who is in charge of all the armies on the earth and above the earth. The cosmic forces. The one who fights for my people, the children of Israel. This is who she's praying to. She believes this God will fight her battles and is able to conquer. And she comes boldly and confidently to him as she asks him for a son. Not just a child. She's asking for a son. Not only does she come confidently, but she comes humbly. She prays with humility. She references herself as a slave three different ways, three different times in this text, as a handmaid. She's not demanding a child from God. It's interesting that she doesn't come to God and say, why? Why haven't you given me a child? She doesn't question God. Instead, she vows a vow to him. God, if, if you will but give me a son, I will give him back to you. Hannah has come to a place where she's willing to give back to God the one thing she desires most. The one thing that she wants more than anything in this life, she's willing to give back to God. And she doesn't even know it yet, but this child that's going to come is not just going to affect her and her family, right? This child to come is going to affect the nation of Israel. He's going to usher in, help usher in, and be a mouthpiece of God, the kingdom of God, ultimately through Christ, right? And this is such an important time for Israel. Hannah's faithfulness and dedication to give back to God is saying, God, this is not about me. I want to give him back to you. And what does she get for such a faithful, bold, humble prayer? 
falsely accused by Eli. Eli would have known that they were there to offer sacrifices. They would have known that there was a big feast afterwards, right? Now, we know because the text said that she didn't eat and she didn't drink. Why? Because she was anxious. She was worried. She was hurting. She didn't feel like eating. Instead, she came to pray. But yet, Eli confronts her anyway because it wasn't their custom to pray silently like that. And so he's, he's watching it. He's putting pieces to the puzzle. Now, some commentators are going to say he was so wicked, he wasn't able to see true piety being offered to God. Perhaps that's true. I don't know. The text doesn't say. But he, he looks at her and sees that this is odd. She's a woman praying silently, and it doesn't look like she's praying. She must be drunk. And she doesn't retaliate to these false accusations. Instead, she pours out her heart to Eli. No, I'm not a worthless woman. This is what I'm doing. I'm praying to God. I'm asking something of God. And Eli doesn't ask her what she asked of God. He just blesses her. May the God of Israel grant your petition to you. And notice Hannah's faith at the end of verse 18. The woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She goes from the state of anxiety, not willing and not wanting to eat, not feeling like eating, to joy. But she doesn't have a kid. She doesn't know she's going to have a child yet. But she has complete confidence because the high priest Eli has blessed her and said, may the God of Israel grant your petition. And she was praying to the Lord of hosts. This is what she was praying for. And so she believed that God was going to answer it. Think about our prayers. Let's apply this to ourselves for a moment. When we pray, when you pray, when you petition of the Lord, are you petitioning of the Lord of hosts? The God who's able to conquer, who rules the heavenly armies and the earthly armies and has everything under his sovereign command. Where do you turn when you're experiencing difficulty? Is it to God? Are there burdens in your life that you have not yet brought to the Lord in prayer? We see Hannah running to the one who conquers, the one who's able to save. So we've seen Hannah's plight and her petition, but now Hannah's going to make good on her vow to the Lord. She, we see Hannah's presentation in verse 1, 19, chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. Let's read that. They rose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. They, 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 the whole family. And Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Hannah knew this was a gift from the Lord. She knew it wasn't just because her and Elkanah were together. And the man... And all of his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. So some time has gone by, and Elkanah is ready to go back and offer the vow. And now Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as I, the child is weaned, I will bring him. So three years old or so, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So he's showing his trust in his faithful wife yet again. 
She has made this vow. He has made this vow his own, and he's trusting that she will follow through with it in the right time. So they go on to worship. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And he said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. I've given him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. He is yours. And he worshiped the Lord there. Now, it's one thing to make a vow to God, to give your only son back to him. It's another thing to hold your infant in your arms and nurse him and wean him. And this is what Elkanah is thinking. Like, okay, as long as you're going to follow through this vow, you can continue on this path. And he, he trusts that she's going to do it. And they do. Now, think about what she's doing with her newborn son. Think about who she's giving him over to to be raised. Now, I know it's not in our story yet, but if you read the next few chapters of 1 Samuel, you start to get an understanding of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Think about the faith that she must have had in God to take her only son and give him to somebody else to raise. But not only that, let's give him to a man who didn't even raise his own two sons well. His sons are wicked. He's allowing this wickedness to take place in the temple of Yahweh. This is who she's giving her son over to. See, her faith is clearly in God, the Lord of hosts. It's not in Eli. It's not in even being raised in the temple, in the tabernacle. It's in God. She's trusting God wholly with her child. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. This is permanent. She's giving him up forever. Think about this in your own life. What, what provisions has God made in your life that you have not recognized are from him? So much of our lives we think we've accomplished out of our own work, our own power. Yet when we take time to reflect and think through the way our lives have worked out, can we not see the hand of God working all along? leading us and guiding us and bringing us to the place that we are? I was thinking about my own life. Am I trusting God with every part of my life? Fully. Fully to him. My job, my bank accounts, my home, my retirement. Parents, how about your own children? This kind of goes really well with Hannah, right? It's so easy as a parent to think, if my kid's not in this Christian school or homeschooled, if I'm not doing this with my child, then there's no way he's going to follow Jesus or she's going to follow Jesus. Think about the culture of Israel at the time. And yet Hannah is fully trusting God. And we know what's going to happen to Samuel. I can't go into it because that's next week, right? Uh, we know what's going to happen to Samuel. He's being placed in this environment. And yet the Lord of hosts, who's able to save us, is able to sanctify us no matter how wicked of a culture that we live in. He's the God who rules. So in one chapter of the Bible, 
1 Samuel chapter 1. God's taken a woman who has suffered most of her adult life without any children. He's blessed and provided a son for her, and she's given him up to be raised by someone else. How does a mother respond to that? What, what does Hannah do next? In my mind, it makes sense that she goes back to being anxious and worried and not, no longer wanting to eat, right? I don't want to be with people. I don't want to talk to anybody. I've just given up my only son. That makes sense to me. Let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and end with Hannah's praise. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but he who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Listen to this next line. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. How big of a God is she praising right now? He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Hannah praises God. She, she praises him for her own salvation. She recognizes that it was the Lord who gave her a son. It was the Lord who lifted her up. She praises God for his character. If you look through verse 4 down through 7, we have these series of contrasts between the strong and the weak, the full, and the hungry. And she goes on and on and on, praising God. In these contrasts, we see God continually upsetting the norms. God continually reversing things, working in completely unexpected ways, using people that we wouldn't think are usable. This is Hannah. God is at work. And finally, Hannah ends this praise of God, praising for the future hope in God. The righteous are under the watch care of God, she says. The wicked, however, are swallowed up in darkness when God withdraws the light of his grace. The last word of her prayer is anointed. It's Messiah. The last few verses, she says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. There is no king. There's no king in Israel. He will exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah. Perhaps this is why Mary used part of Hannah's prayer in Luke, right? 
we have these hints of a coming Messiah who's going to save the world. Hannah praised God for who he was. I hope that Hannah's relentless faith, as we have seen it played out in her, her plight and her difficulty, but then in her petition to God, her presentation of her only son and her prayer of praise, I pray that it will be encouragement to each of us this week. As we struggle with different circumstances in life, we worship and we serve the Lord of hosts. And God's calling us to faithful obedience, just like Hannah. And we never know what God is doing as he works through difficulties in our hearts and in our lives. But we know it's for our good. We know it's for his glory. And one day, we'll see exactly what God was doing in the culmination of time. Let's pray. God, we can't help but praise you. God, you are indeed the Lord of hosts. For the pillars of the earth are yours, and you have set the world on them. And here we are in Greenville, South Carolina, in that world. God, you are so much bigger than we realize. We cannot grasp your greatness. God, you're doing a work in our hearts and our lives that we don't understand, even when it hurts. God, we see these stories throughout the Old Testament. We see this as how you work. And yet, we fail to trust in you when difficulties come in our hearts and our lives. God, give us faith in you. Strengthen our hearts to walk in obedience to you. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you've done. In Jesus' name.